0: But the thing that keeps The Shootist in the front of my mind, even now, three days after watching it, is the surprising amount of introspection and character depth on John Wayne's behalf. Um, He's a man who otherwise is used to punching and shooting his way out of situations, the sort of noble brute. And to be able to make a narrative film about the exact circumstances that you find yourself in in real life, it's kind of a rare thing. And it's even rarer to be able to reflect on your own death in such a public and forever recorded way. Welcome to Theater and Stream, a film podcast. I am Matt and that is Chuck and this is episode 3. This week we're on part 2 of our Don Siegel retrospective with a featured review of 1976 The Shootist. Before that we've got a jam-packed news section including another week of asking ourselves, what did Disney do this week? <laughs> Folks, I assure you we are not Disney adults. This company just keeps making some very strange decisions next on the docket is a filled to the brim watch list and as always we'll close out the show with the mentionable where we suggest one non-movie non-tv thing from this week and the pick of the week where we name the one film or tv show that we covered that you should watch above all the others you're going to find the timestamps in the episode description and if you like what you see and maybe like what you hear throw us a like and subscribe but that's the business end of the show chuck i'll turn it over to you
1: i just want to you know briefly shout out all of you poor souls who stumbled upon our channel because you wanted to find out more about palm trees and power lines or because you wanted to find a, the full movie on youtube but i'm <laughs> grateful for your, your you know viewership and Hopefully, more of you you'll know, stick around. You know, you know. Please do subscribe. Come back. We we also will talk about other strange shit that comes out this year, because 2023 is fixing to be even more bizarre cinematically than the year that than the year of the multiverse that was 2022. We are heading into rarefied you know times. Everything is getting is is on the table for reimagining and like just another stab. At you know that old dead horse and there isn't a horse debtor to me anyway than the harry potter franchise but guess what jk is just gonna make some more money i'm I'm sorry guys um because hbo max has been closing in on having a seven season series order of the harry potter books so we've already had those movies and now we're gonna have harry potter for another generation like like 10 15 years like later than like the last movie coming out basically i don't know like how serious is this like and, and is this the right way to go
0: oh yeah i think this is very serious i mean to me this just screams zazlav like 100% like you know anybody can say like oh it's you know it's only been you know 12 years since the harry potter movies ended but it could literally be three years and that guy will do it. He doesn't give a shit as long as it makes money. And this is like, this is like a guaranteed win, like a guaranteed, like, you know, billion dollars in their pockets. So, I mean, this is, I think this is probably gonna happen.
1: And not just, you know, happen, you know, it's probably going to be wildly successful. Because mm-hmm. they, I, but the, like, just, just in, because this is the kind of thing when I was a kid, and I was annoyed at what they did with *Prisoner of Azkaban*. You know, like imagine this: a thirteen-year-old being like, "They didn't do the book. They didn't do this right." That's what I was doing, and and I thought to myself, "Wow, wouldn't it be great if HBO had this?" Like this was a dream of mine when I was younger, and now it's happening. But I guess the question is, is it just going to adhere even further to like what J.K. Rowling originally wrote, or is this all going to be about revitalizing? the brand of Harry Potter versus serving the stories of Harry Potter?
0: Well, you know, I would hope because, you know, you take a typical TV season and I would assume these episodes will probably be hour long. So you get 10 hours instead of two or two and a half to actually flesh out these books a lot more because I do know, you know, I'm not like the biggest Harry Potter um aficionado but i do know you know from speaking to my wife that they did leave a lot of stuff out of the those movies just because i mean for brevity's sake because you can only make a movie like that at max you know two and a half hours i think is what they typically topped out at and so yeah, I mean, it's it's a chance to do the books better, I think. And, you know, I think Ro- Rowling has been a very good steward of her brand. She pulled a George Lucas, and she gets final say on everything. And in this past, you know, decade and two years since the movies ended, you know, we haven't... All the things we've gotten, for the most part, other than the Fantastic Beasts movies, which are middling to bad... You know she's been been a pretty good steward of her brand you know she has a critically and commercially acclaimed theme park one of the best theme parks like in the world um she has a uh broadway play that's acclaimed the cursed child um she has they just came out with the video game hogwarts legacy that is critically and commercially acclaimed and that's you know other than the fantastic beast movies That's really all she's done with the property since the movies ended. And so I feel like she's a pretty good decider of, you know, what should and shouldn't be done. And she had to sign off on this. So, you know, there has to be something more here, something that made her go, okay, let's do this. Mm. You know. And
1: yeah, it it, it probably is that more completeness. Like I, I personally would love to see more Quidditch. So they were guaranteed at least one or two Quidditch episodes a season, which is something that the movie critics in the world hated. Like they like whenever the Quidditch popped up in the Harry Potter movies, the critics' eyes would glaze over and they would start hating the movie. Which is why they stopped seeing Quidditch sequences in Harry Potter movies after a while. But those were my favorite chapters. I I reread the like when they beat Slytherin and they finally win the Quidditch cup. I that's like my favorite chapter of, mm-hmm. of any bit bit of harry potter for some reason when i was a kid i re- would reread that chapter I, mm-hmm. I was i was really
0: bored i only had a sega genesis at that <laughs> point in my life um
1: but all that well, says yeah
0: sorry it's um you know i i find myself in sort of the unique position with this property with the harry i've seen all the movies And I've read, um, I read, I actually read all the books up until I think the last one. And then I just never read the last one for some reason. The last one's the best um, one,
1: just in terms of like, yeah, things actually happen in it. Yeah. It's not just, yeah, there's urgency in it.
0: Yeah, the end. And so, but I'm sort of in the unique position with this property where I really, I mean, I really don't care. And so if it's good, yeah, if it's good, I'll watch it. If it's not good, I'll ignore it. And that's kind of where I stand with it. I I, I just don't have that many strong feelings with this property, unlike something else we're going to talk about a little bit later in the news section.
1: Oh, yeah. But this is a larger trend. It's not just HBO Max and Warner Brothers Discovery doing this. Like, I, I don't know how serious Dwayne The Rock Johnson is about his intentions for a live action Moana, but he really, really wants it so he can be relevant and maybe be Maui. You know, is that the whole point? Does he just want to be Maui on screen? Not just voice? You no, know, I think
0: I think it's literally because I think the only amount of thought that went into that Moana uh remake is we're running out of uh our animated movies to remake because I was looking at um, you know, all the stuff that they have they've done already or they have in production, and the only Moana is the only, or it's the next major Disney, you know, Disney animation non Pixar movie that they could do because everything else they have left either it wasn't a big enough hit to justify remaking, you know, stuff like uh, Atlantis or The Sword and the Stone or the, you know, the Black Cauldron. It's all stuff that. You know, being, nobody. I'm being held up by a little girl with a, a gun. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's you know it's all stuff that um, kids these days don't have any sort of frame of reference for, so they don't really care. And so Moana is kind of the next on the docket, and <laughs> the only other thing is, and they're they're never going to do this because of all you know the 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 problems of it, the problematicness of it. But the only other thing they could possibly do is Pocahontas. And, Dude, and they, you're be, never, gonna never
1: gonna see that. You're no. never gonna see that. some Yeah, everyone's coming into the show now. Like, <laughs> but then why are we and this is kind of a sidebar, but like why are we yeah. getting Quest loves Aristocats?
0: Yeah, that's a strange one. I mean, it's it's all like, I don't know, there well here here's my answer to that. Disney, they put so little thought into the people that are they are giving their properties to. And you know, again, this is another thing that's gonna play out a little bit later in the show when we look at the people that are involved with some of these Star Wars projects. And you know, this this Quest Love thing, it it reminds me of that also, where it's just like, oh, it, it literally seems like they drew a name out of a hat.
1: Like The only way I can like basically what they're doing is they're like, hey Quest love, how would you like to be Scat Cat in the Aristocats live action? And he was like, I'll only do that if you'll let me direct the movie. Because he yeah, is an Academy, probably. he's an Academy Award winner now, technically, you know, because of the the documentary about the Summer of Soul, I think is what it was called. Yeah. yeah. Which is a good companion piece to When We Were Kings, the documentary about Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Mm-hmm. But does mm-hmm. that mean that this guy should make family entertainment? I guess they know better. But that, that's a good segue to the, 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 sec- the second meaty topic that we have going on, which is, you know, this shareholder call with Bob Iger and Disney shareholders that happened, you know, basically confronting the company's whole philosophy towards that question. Are we entertaining or like, are we, you know, trying to help make the world a better place through, you know, our messaging within our, you know, films? How are we serving the people who work for us? How do we serve the audience? And he got some pushback because there's disagreement amongst, you know, the, the wide audience that Disney has over what the priority should be. Some people really appreciate, you know, the ideological and political stances the company has taken. Some people feel alienated by it. So it's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. And Bob Iger is really kind of, I don't know, is he being wishy-washy about what he's like actually saying in these responses? because they kind of got ambushed a couple times on the shareholder call. I don't know if our audience is familiar with what these kinds of things look like, but it's just a, a Zoom call with a bunch of people who own stock in Disney. Some of them mm-hmm. are institutional investors, so people who, you know, like represent, you know, you know, hedge funds and the like. And then there's retail investors who are just Joe Schmoes with money, you know, who have some Disney stock. And he kind of got pushback from both groups on these questions and I have some of these quotes you know, flying up on the screen here, including Iger's responses to it, but that's kind of the setup. Um, oh, you, <laughs> you want to use this? Okay, there you go. you got well, your cookie board.
0: Here's what I'll say about that is, um, you know, they... Disney cares about something so long as it makes them money. And just because just because they say that they're going to do something doesn't mean that it's actually going to play out in their films and TV. And so, I, I don't know, to me that this this whole like politicalness of their movies and stuff like that, it's something that they can say on a shareholder's call to make them look and sound good. And then, you know, whether or not that actually plays out in the films, I mean, we'll see, but... I don't know it's just it's so easy for them to say we're gonna do this 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 and this and then two years from now nobody's gonna question nobody's gonna go back to the shareholder call and be like you said you were gonna do this so i don't know it's just kind of they care about the stuff so long as it it keeps the money coming in and once it doesn't then they'll kind of just drop it without saying much i think
1: yeah because there is a a lot of i guess preening and like grandstanding from the you know, like i like the the doomcocks of the world like the the midnight's edge people whose whole business model is ranting about disney you know and, and you know and going after them for various things getting scoops from inside anonymous insiders and the like and to them they feel like this is like the the death of like this is the nail in the coffin disney's finally dead which is mm. just cope you know, cause the, there's a, a conservative commentator who people are, he's really divisive. You know, he's one of those anti-trans guys named Matt Walsh. And I think he's actually right about something here where he's like, no, like there's no such thing as going woke and going broke. You know, like, it, like th- th- this isn't like they are making their money. No one is actually unsubscribing. Like all those mm-hmm. big subscriber drops for Disney plus that people were talking about primarily came from India where they were like, you know, where they no longer were allowing service on a particular platform that people utilized as I understand it. So it's not that people were mass unsubscribing from Disney plus they had to like deliberately push part of the market away from using a platform and they haven't come back basically in that region. So it reflects the larger whole, but the propaganda from, you know, just people who are froth mouthed and angry, you know, is, is is off base and they're going to be proven wrong but they don't care about being wrong. Like they, they might be, you know, right that people there are a lot of people who are unhappy with certain things that Disney does. But this company isn't going to die. Like there's a, there's there's no. rumors, you know, that this group is spreading around that Disney is like rolling out all this massive Star Wars announcements because they are just trying to make the property of Disney itself more appealing because the name of the game is no longer mm-hmm. to buy up everybody else it is to sell to apple
0: yeah oh yeah totally like yeah mergers and acquisitions that's like that's just like all all it is nowadays i mean that we we're seeing that play out right now in the uh the, the games industry the video game industry where you know like five companies are going around and buying up every other smaller company and that's that's kind of that's the way of the future.
1: Yeah, and you, you won't be able to play Call of Duty on a Sony PlayStation. That's just the way of the world. That's why everyone should invest in powerful portable emulation hardware. But we'll get to that later. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the extent of this. There's all, initially we were going to talk about oh no is the Reedy Creek Improvement District a, a, a sham fraud? But who cares about that kind of shit really? Unless you're an attorney or you like live in Florida and your tax dollars maybe are involved. But, yeah, Iger seems pretty, you know, you know, committed to staying the course. He doesn't want to upset, you know, anybody too deeply. But he's not going to make anybody, you know, too, you know, like, happy, I think, uh, on either side of this culture war struggle. Because this is supposed to be just about entertaining kids, entertaining families, giving people, you know, what they want. And guess what? People, sometimes people want that woke well, shit. You got to accept that. This is the world we should you know but we'll leave that where it is because what's more important is what are they giving us what like what are they going to be giving families who want to have the latest in star wars content and good golly miss molly did they ever just like bukaki it all over our collective faces <laughs> all in one go where do we start we start with james mangold doing yes. a biblical epic about the dawn of the jedi that's not the title of it that is just the vibe that it's gonna the 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 area it's gonna explore this is the the the, we're gonna see the jedi temple be built i take it
0: yeah i could i would imagine i mean they they started off their presentation by announcing uh three new movies and this was the first one not a trilogy not a new trilogy but just three new movies and yeah, this one's gonna go back to the very beginning so this is um this is like before everything even before i mean what we assumed was the beginning uh in the past is no longer the beginning because the old republic used to be the the stuff that people would sort of treat the the old video games from the xbox original xbox days and now they're going even further and so yeah we'll see kind of how this plays out i i like mangold he's I think he's a good director and I'm really not sure like why he's going like full like studio player now because yeah, that is weird. Um, he yeah, he's of course doing the Indiana Jones movie and now he's doing the Star Wars movie and then he he also actually I don't know if you saw this um, but he accidentally was given an interview yesterday and let slip that he's doing the Swamp thing movie for DC. So this guy is just going full like studio player like it kind of sucks that I think the days of, like, his, you know, smaller films are behind us now. You know, his 310 to Yuma's and his identities and his walk the lines. I don't think yeah. we're ever going to see that type of stuff from him. But, um,
1: yeah. like the, yeah. the guy who directed Girl Interrupted is yeah. now a comic book movie director. Yeah, that's a, that's a strange, strange little career evolution. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's the first dude to direct an Indiana Jones movie not named Spielberg. That's pretty Mm -hmm. crazy in and of itself. But it's too bad because, yeah, this guy did make some very interesting movies for the time, but he's been making Wolverine movies since 10 years ago. So maybe we're the ones who need to catch up with where the man is at. But now we have our man Dave Filoni, who I have some, I don't know if I should have beef with him or not, but they are giving him the keys to the kingdom. By the looks of things what does he have going on
0: yeah so he is going to be doing a film that is being described as the culmination of the events of mandalorian the ahsoka show and the book of boba fett and the thing, oh man. The thing that kind of sucks about this to me is that they're being very specific about the language they're using here, and I, I think it's interesting how they use the word "culmination" and not "finale" or not, you know, the end. Um, and people have been asking him about this in interviews since this press conference, and he he's he's clearly making he's making it clear that this is not the end, which sucks to me. I mean. Uh, you know, go back to Favreau's comments from a couple months ago where he said that, oh, the Mandalorian could go on forever. I have ideas, you know, to go indefinitely. And that's kind of what we're seeing play out here. So what what this is, is this is the, like, comic book event equivalent of these movies and TV shows where you get the main, the big main comic book event in the movie form and then you get like the tie-in comics in the form of mandalorian ahsoka and book of boba fett and yeah it's i don't know i don't like this at all
1: it it's i don't know they're, they're doing things that maybe marvel should be doing you shouldn't be doing this shit with star wars but the impression that i get from i don't know maybe i'm off base here but this whole pre- i'll say I'll, I'll save that comment for the end but it's like i agree with you This just doesn't really feel like what we've, I guess, as an audience have signed up for. Like, it's endless. It's just fueling endless trash. Like, what made Mandalorian Season 2 so powerful, like that finale, you know, was the feeling like, oh, like it, it felt like the end of a story. And then Book of Boba Fett just cracked that ending apart threw the whole thing to the four winds and they've just been trying to put this thing back together again like the mold mm-hmm. was broken and it, it the, this new season of mandalorian is not working no it's not not, not at all not yeah. at all i was i was trying to i was being very generous with it up until i saw that fucking picture of jack black and lizzo oh, and then i watched yeah. that episode like i was like okay i can't just listen to the loudest voices in the room what do i think about this the loudest voices are right about this. Like th- this show mm-hmm. is falling apart, and I don't think that you know making it continue on like this is helping. It's a zombie now, and the book of Boba Fett kind of proved that. Even though the Mandalorian stuff was the best thing about it, which doesn't you yeah. know like make me hopeful about too much. Like I haven't seen Rebels. I don't really know like the the all the work he's done with the character Ahsoka as much as other people do. So maybe that show will, will will be worthwhile, but yeah, at this point, I am hesitant to trust anything with Dave Filoni's name on it.
0: Yeah, well, what we're what we're seeing playing out in real time here is Disney's gaining confidence, uh, or regaining confidence in theaters again. Where, um, when the Mandalorian season two came out, Disney Plus, because it was you know COVID was going on, because everybody was at home the mainline stories were playing out on Disney plus now Disney is regaining confidence in movie theaters. Again, you're going to just be seeing the mainline stories the the A tier stories in movie theaters from now on, you got to go to the theater to see them. And now you're getting the B tier stuff on Disney plus that's, what's going to happen from now on.
1: Ooh, that's going to be unfortunate because so. guess who's back motherfuckers. Yeah. The lady who can't find a job <laughs> is going to be back in the job that ruined her career. Cause uh, we got Daisy Ridley returning to like a full fucking like trilogy of films about her character building the new Jedi order post uh, rise of Skywalker. And uh, how
0: are they just going to age her up 15 years? Well, you know, I got the impression that especially these three movies, these first three movies are incredibly early. Like I don't think, I don't even think scripts have been written. Uh, at this point, so yeah. I I think like I mean it's it still isn't going to be 15 years, but I think we don't see any of these films, these first three films, for at least another four or five years. It okay. might, would be my guess. Okay, so.
1: so she could you could conceivably you know, pad the you know, pad it for narrative expediency because the further mm-hmm. removed they are from the, the 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 failed trilogy that never that that never was. The better off they'll be narratively, I think. But yeah, is wh- what about this lady like Charmin obayad Shanoi? She's a Iranian filmmaker, like a two-time Academy Award winner. Hmm. Why is she making a Star Wars project? <laughs> yeah,
0: you no, know, this is exactly what I was talking about in when when we were just talking earlier. Is it literally seems like Disney is pulling names out of a hat because this woman like she has no experience in the action film genre. She has no experience in the blockbuster genre. She has no experience. Her, you, I looked at her IMDb yesterday. It's literally nothing but documentary short films, uh, documentary feature films, and then animated like um, uh, uh, Iranian films, like animated uh, feature length animated films. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, you are giving your most... You know, this is probably the movie that everything rests on. You know, whether we right. like it or not. You know, this is this is going to be the film. This is the film that pushes the timeline. You know, this is the film that adds to the Star Wars timeline. Instead of, instead of us just working within the confines of, you know, the older films, trying to fill in the gaps between those mainline movies, this is the one that is actually new. And... It's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you giving it to this lady who has no experience doing, you know, any of these things? I mean, I think what they're really trying to do is find the next Rousseau brothers um, and do, you know, the same thing they did with them. But, you know, that's like a one, That's like a one in 50 chance or like a one in a hundred chance. Like it's not, it just doesn't play, it doesn't work out as often as they think it does.
1: And is it because they already you know dipped into the nerd bucket when they you know with Abrams and you know Johnson and for like was it like who was it Trevorrow for the hot minute that he was involved? They were all like mm-hmm. nerd you know kind of blockbustery types you know who all came the like two of them came from humble indie beginnings obviously, but they were at least seemed competent enough to handle what they were being given, even though we were proven wrong time and time again, <laughs> but going in it like my reaction when ryan johnson got the last jedi gig was like fuck yeah dude right on like, yeah. like i trust this guy and coming into this it's like you know, like i have no frame of reference she doesn't have a looper you know in her back pocket to like you'll know, lean on for her you know bona fides it's just not there mm-hmm. she she makes yeah. sense if you you'll know, go to the oscars and you you know schmooze and you know her in that context but yeah can, can we trust her to you know competently stage and shoot an action sequence but the reality is she these directors probably have no control over that shit it's all predetermined by other people in the production queue more than likely i'm just assuming based on what we know about marvel and she is there just for the sake of you know what she can say in the behind the scenes documentaries and you like what she can do with the actors so I don't know. Are are they wrong? Should they be doing this Lucas style where they just tr- you know, treat the actors like shit, you know, and give them nothing <laughs> so they can focus on, you know, like making sure that the potatoes float right and stop motion when they're doing the asteroid sequences?
0: You know, I I think literally what it is, is they they hire all of these like young gun, you know, greenhorn directors because they're people that they can push around You know, like they, this this lady is literally like a nobody for all intents and purposes. And you know that's going to be kind of the theme that we're going to see as we work our way down this list of films and TV. You know, all these directors are like literal nobodies, and I'm sure that they just like they just they hire these people because they can push them around, because they can pay them they can pay them like a a couple hundred thousand instead of you know ten million or, or or a cut of the box office, and they just. You know, it, these movies are all done by committee, anyways. So it's not like, you know, this lady is going to have any sort of meaningful artistic impact on this film. So, but yeah. here's the deeper question:
1: Do we want more raised Ray Palpatine? I'm not going to call her Skywalker. That just feels dirty. <laughs> like, do we want more from this character? Like, there's a reason why she didn't get gigs. It was because people, yeah. right, like in the industry, rightly knew. Oh. She is not the draw. People associate her too much with movies that they don't like. It's the, it's the opposite of what happened to Mark Hamill. He struggled because people associated him with movies that people did like too much mm-hmm. for them to consider him for certain roles or for his career to you know really flourish beyond you know, like his initial successes. But in her case, it was because the character and the movies she was in are kind of irrelevant. And you know, are, and, and people have a kind of visceral reaction to it that isn't positive. So why are we going to spend probably a billion dollars making more content with this character? Is it just to prove a point that like Star Wars doesn't belong to anybody anymore but Disney, <laughs> and they can do whatever the fuck they want?
0: Well, I mean, I, to, I yeah, I'm, I'm really not excited about the Ray aspect of this, like. I'm willing to give this movie, you know, the time of day to some extent because I do want to see where they push the this this universe forward. I'm I'm sick of getting these stories That's that are set in the margins of the of the movies, and I I do want to see you know where they're gonna take the universe and, you know, I think Ray is. Um, she is popular, but you have to find the right people that she's popular with. And those people are, you know, little girls between the ages of like three and like 15, you know, yeah. or, or three and 14. Like it's there, there is certain people that she is popular with. And I think that's really all they care about is, um, you know, selling, selling that eight year old girl, the, the Ray version of the Barbie doll or whatever, or the, the Ray stuffed stuffed animal or whatever.
1: Because if, if there is a popular you know, care, female character within Star Wars, it is Ahsoka, the, the trailer that yeah. we were given. But what does this show look to be about? It's still just existing in the margins by the look of it, but is this just Dave Filoni getting the chance to do all of his animation work in live action now? Is that what this man has successfully achieved, is bullying this billion dollar you know, corporation into just letting him fulfill his fan fiction dreams?
0: You know, I think I think so. I think that's exactly what this is. I mean, he's gotten to the point, you know, in all honesty, I could see Dave Filoni becoming the Star Wars Kevin Feige in the next you know decade. I could totally see that happening. And I think like this is sort of his part of his ascending in this within this company. And, you know, I think this out of all the things, I think this actually looks pretty cool. Um, it seems to actually understand, you know, what Star Wars is. And the thing that has me excited is that Thrawn, that that little one second of footage we get of, of Thrawn, because Thrawn is, you know, one of the cooler things that um, I believe it was a Timothy Zahn creation from the early 90s. Uh, expanded universe stuff and that is one of the cooler characters to come out of the expanded universe so i'm totally down for that um that that looks to be really cool
1: and it's you know something that you know is encouraging because yeah this is this precedes disney this is like one of the mm. few things this character that is getting brought in from everything that was just like you know thrown into the gutter as soon as the the ink was dry on the contracts with lucas and the whole situation with like, how is this character going to be used? Like, how deeply are they going to hew to Thrawn's trilogy? Probably not at all, because guess what? It involved all of the characters that they've murdered from the original <laughs> cast. So, yeah, it has to be something completely new because Han, Luke, Leia, dead. The their son mm-hmm. dead. So, like, we have no more of the connective tissue to the original trilogy but we will have this periphery character and it, it does look pretty dang good like I, I am loving the variety of you know like the kinds of like, like lightsabers and just force powers that we're seeing on display because if there's something about the mandalorian that i've been hating is just how damn boring it is and at least yeah. this looks visually exciting it looks competent in all the ways that like book of boba fett and mando season three haven't been Like, it it is just shocking to me that something that was so impactful and indelible, you know, like has been reduced so much for no reason, you know, seemingly. And I hope that this is enough juice to keep me interested because I am very discouraged as a a viewer of, of a lot of this, you know, streaming content.
0: Do you know, just to kind of put a cap on this Thrawn bit. Yeah. Do you know who's who's playing Thrawn? Have have you looked I've, into that at all? I've heard rumors that
1: Benedict Cumberbatch, but he said he didn't want to do it. So who is who do we actually know is
0: doing it? It's uh Mads Mickelson's brother. Wait a minute. Lars m- Mikkelsen. Wait, really? Holy yeah. fuck yeah, bro. Okay. I can fuck with that. Yeah, he's a uh He's a pretty popular Danish actor in his own right. And yeah, he's playing Thrawn. And so that that has me very, uh, that's another kind of point in the positive category because he he was on Borgin and he oh. was really good in that show. And so, um, yeah, really, that that's that's gonna be, that's good casting, I think. That's very good casting. I would
1: say so. Um, next up, we have something that, you know, ties into what we talked about during the Ides of, of Mouse segment last week, because this is the lady who is doing the Acolyte um her name is god damn it i i had it and then i lost like it. uh Lindsay or leslie headland leslie headland whose yeah. credits are like things like russian doll and like tv like that she also wrote and directed the movie sleeping with other people which was like one of the the hollywood's first forays into promoting you know alternative like open marriage lifestyles i remember watching it at the time because it was one of those indie movies that would just pop up on stream on netflix very quickly and it had like Allison Bree brie and jason sudeikis back when they were still slumming it in the old projects like that but does this sound like a woman who's or not a woman just a person who should be directing or show running rather a actiony star wars series yet again we have to ask why and I'll, yeah, i let this advance a little bit. And the why is, oh, she used to work for Harvey Weinstein.
0: Really? Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. but that's that's interesting. She used oh, to God. work for
1: Harvey Weinstein.
0: Um, yeah, everything everything's falling into place. Yeah, <laughs> it, this doesn't. Again, this doesn't make any sense to me. Her her uh, resume doesn't show that she would would be able to competently do this stuff. And again, you know, I'm already. Uh, you put the the uh, headline up on the screen here, but I'm already annoyed by this lady because her first interview she gave was like immediately confrontational to, towards like Star Wars fans. Immediately just like in that, she's in that state of mind that like the Witcher showrunner lady was in where she's just immediately confrontational. And she's like, I am here to fuck shit up. And I'm gonna ask the questions nobody else is asking, and like I'm gonna, you know, point out why stuff doesn't make sense in this universe. And it's just like, God, you're giving me major like Ryan Johnson vibes, like Last Jedi vibes, big yeah, time.
1: Yeah, Like it, it, opening, like your f- first impressions are important, and opening with condescension is, isn't gonna win anybody. It's it, like unless it's you know people who you know agree that you know, who you're being condescending to deserve it basically because yeah like fans are you know, kind of have a, a dirty reputation now especially within you know that company and uh, yeah like the, the if you like want to stick it to them you just let them know how much you're gonna you know piss in their cheerios and then make them eat it because that's basically what they're saying so yeah like i probably won't watch the accolade i'll watch the other things but yeah i probably like, what, what is the accolade even supposed to be about did we get footage
0: <laughs> for this I think they showed footage, but um, it was it was just shown there. They didn't put it online.
1: Okay, and it, and it did not leak out. But what did leak out? And you mentioned this is the everything going on with skeleton crew, yeah, which apparently yeah. is like you, you you mentioned it's Stranger Things and Star Wars,
0: yeah, or that's what I think it was Fine. probably pitched. That it was pitched as that. I, I could totally see somebody just walking into a room and just going, imagine Stranger Things star wars and then and then eiger was like here's you know 100 million bucks here you go because um i did see the the cam rip of this online this hasn't been released officially online but i did see the cam rip with the trailer and it looks very like there's a point in the trailer for this in which we see basically the star wars equivalent of the suburbs where like a camera a camera is like panning down a like street in like what looks to be the star wars's version of indiana or something like that so are they going to be playing star wars dungeons and dragons and like talking about john carpenter's the thing oh i I wouldn't be surprised i mean it's like there's there's a line too in the trailer where a, a a father figure um because this what we know this is about is it's about a a group of um, kids in the star Wars universe who, who get somehow get lost um, in space essentially. And um, there's a point in the trailer where one of their dads goes, have you finished your homework? Have you finished? He's basically saying, have you finished your space homework? And like, it's, it's just so I'm getting the Amblin vibes. I'm getting the 1980s Spielberg vibes. Definitely.
1: Okay. I just have to say this star Trek has already beat them to the fucking punch. Star Trek Prodigy is this exact yeah. show.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's already
1: been done. You you come on. Like, I don't know. It still might be good. It might be cool. It sounds interesting. Maybe. But
0: yeah, it sounds it's it's at, at least at the very least, it's unique. And um, I know Jude Law's in it. So that's that's cool. I I, I like Jude Law. Much He's respect a, to the man. Yeah. yeah.
1: So but, and OK, the acolyte, you had this in the notes, the elevator pitch for the acolyte. Yeah. Bill Bill meets Frozen.
0: Yeah, that's a strange one. <laughs> I mean, it's basically here here's what my thought is is probably what what she means by that. It's going to be because we do know that it is about like a younger Sith. Um and so what I'm imagining that this show probably is is it's a it's a younger Sith like Padawan uh sort of trying to learn to control her dark side powers and that's where the frozen part comes in and then um, she's on some sort of quest to find and, and kill her, her master or her master. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the kill bill part comes in. That's what I imagine that probably is.
1: You just convinced me that this is going to be good. <laughs> that's a problem.
0: You know? Yeah. Who knows? I mean, it, it could be, I mean, it's kind of cool, to, I guess, to get, um, a show about the dark side, about a dark side character. Yeah. You know? And to
1: not just have them um, be by default evil you know, it's like mm-hmm. like not in a postmodern sense, but just have some nuance. But in general, I feel like this is this was Kathleen Kennedy just being like, "You motherfuckers think I'm dead? You yeah. she's like you fucking losers? I'll show you how dead I am." Because honestly, I'm kind of impressed with the hutzpah, because she walks out there and is just like, "Oh, you think you have the whole story? You don't have the whole story." Because that's the timeline of like all the sagas within the Star mm-hmm. Wars you know mega mega narrative and at the the back end we have the dawn of the jedi and then the new jedi order which is the mangold project and then the the ray project with the iranian filmmaker and of course everything in between like Mm -hmm. are they are they trying a little too hard to try and codify this like like, do we do we need a timeline we'll put in our faces to know the whole story of star wars (laughs)
0: I don't know. I think they're, they're not looking before they're leaping basically. Okay. And they're just like, you know, th- this is typical. I mean, we've seen this, They we've seen this make this mistake so many times before where they're just like, you know, they're building all this stuff out, um, five years before it actually happens. And, um, I guess, yeah, like since we're sort of getting to the, the end of this segment, I want to say that in light of all this stuff, um, and Iger's comments from a couple months ago, when, you know, when those Disney financials came out and everybody was freaking out because Disney Plus was apparently okay. doing really bad. And, um, and then he made the comments, Iger said, maybe we should slow down, is, is I think what he said. Like, maybe we should pull back on these projects. Well, I'm here to tell you that they're not pulling back at all and that didn't mean anything. And what they meant by that was, we're, we're gonna make just as many things but instead of releasing them three months in between each thing, we're gonna string them out of it. You know, we'll do them. We'll give you two a year. Or we'll give you. We'll give you one a year, and then we'll we'll string you out for that Disney Plus subscription. You know, we'll kind of string you along with that. And so that's what he. I'm pretty sure that's what he meant by that. And yeah. it wasn't actually like, it wasn't actually like, hey, maybe we should slow down and think about the quality of the stuff we're putting out. Um, that wasn't it. So. We're
1: we're gonna give you the same quality. Just we're gonna you you know, put some gap, put some air between them, so that the stink from one isn't in the air still when the other shows up. Yeah, yeah pretty you know, much. Pretty that's that's unfortunate because one would hope that oh no, let's take some time, let's you know trying to you know, actually you know make something worth people's time because there like, Star Wars fatigue is pretty real. I was feeling it before our <laughs> conversation today. I looked at all this shit. And I was, I just got depressed. I was just like, I'm not excited about any of this, but I'm feeling a little more positive. I'm not as, you know, doom gloomy shitlord about star Wars. Now I feel like I have a better grounding with what my, you know, sort of appreciation for it is going to be. And it is going to be for the things that actually seem worthwhile. Cause not everything in that lineup, you know, passes the yeah. sniff test, but <laughs> I'm more encouraged because I looked at this and I was like, well, I'm, there's no reason for me to watch Star Wars again. I just watched them become bad Star Trek in that Mandalorian episode. And not, like now I don't even want to watch another frame of that show again. But, you know, they, they got me. It's Star Wars. I'm not going to go anywhere. Neither is anybody else. Stop kidding yourselves, people. Um oh, God. But uh, as long as, you know, Doomcock's Patreon keeps him fat, happy and sassy, I guess, you know, that's <laughs> the whole point behind everything. Is there anything else you wanted to say?
0: I guess the only other thing is um, the thing that got me most excited out of all this stuff, all these trailers and all these announcements, was the very, very small detail that when they put up that timeline, one of the things they put up was the Old Republic, and so um, you know that makes me sort of giddy because I, you know, I'm a big fan of that that uh, particular. Um, time frame of the Star Wars universe. I had mentioned earlier, you know, the video games, the nice little old Republic One and Two. I think that that is some of the best stuff that Star Wars has ever done, and just the fact that they acknowledge that that exists and that we may be getting more stories in that time period makes me pretty excited.
1: Absolutely. The I bought those on a Steam sale a long time ago, and I've I tried playing the first one, but. It just, I just couldn't get into it. Not for the game's fault, my own fault. I ran out of time, and it, mm-hmm. but it, it, I love because Ma- those are the progenitors to Mass Effect, you know, those, those yes. from Bioware. And so, like, I feel like I needed to, you know, you know, get into it because they are so well regarded. They're revered. Darth Revan, that whole twist is it's a part of video game history and Star Wars history. So it'd be really cool if they transitioned mm-hmm. in that direction. We're gonna close the new segment a little bit of a, a downer note i don't like know if many in our audience knew who ryuchi i spelled his name wrong sakamoto um you know was but he was a pioneering you know composer and musician from japan who did a lot of you know good work in like new wave you know and and then also in film composition um your recent credit obviously was the revenant uh, but uh, a lot of people knew him more for movies like thank you or merry christmas mr lawrence and the last emperor for which he won an oscar uh he also starred in merry christmas mr lawrence alongside dave bowie which is an interesting thing about that movie but i'll get into that in a second in the watch list but uh i guess it had were you familiar with his work at all
0: you know i i wasn't i i'm not too familiar with him um at least with the knowledge that i'm listening to him but of course i went back and looked at his his credits and you know i've seen plenty of the stuff that he's uh done the compositions for of course the revdent he did um some compositions for black rain the michael douglas like action movie yeah and so i I love that movie and um and yeah so i i I do i am familiar with his work in that i've seen movies with him before i wasn't really familiar with the guy but um I I was reading interviews sort of in preparation for us talking about this and I just kind of want to draw a parallel here to the fact that he he was diagnosed with stage 3 throat cancer uh, around the time that he was working on The Revenant and I was last last night when I was doing my my um, notes for this episode I was listening to the soundtrack just on YouTube while I was working and it's you can hear the melancholy in that that movie score and you can hear the sort of direness and it's it's one of those things where his sort of state of mind in real life is reflected in the work and that's something that we're going to talk about again a little bit later Absolutely. in our main review so
1: yeah and the footage that's playing up here right now is actually you know from uh, christmas time last you know hot last winter at the end of 2022 where he is playing the the score for uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and like very different from like the version that's in the movie. Very very melancholy. This was a man who knew he was dying, and had you know come back to like what was his first work in film, and probably his most heralded, you know, just in terms of you know you know his acclaim over time. Which is you know, why I chose to you know kick off the the watch list this week. You know, with a, a review of it, because I just felt compelled to you know check it out, because it just sounded like such a bizarre little you know piece of cinema that I had never heard of before. It's uh, directed by the 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 same gentleman who did *In the Realm of the Senses*. Have you ever are you familiar with that? The, the, the yeah, it's like
0: the. I think the only thing I know about that movie is it's it's famous for um having like unsimulated sex, right? A, a, a
1: woman has a boiled egg put inside of her, and then she gives birth to it on screen it's like yeah it probably created a lot of you know fetishes for people but yeah a very very restrained movie it it it, like kind of like you know the shootist that we're going to be talking about later it looks like it was from a different decade than the one it was filmed in there's just Mm -hmm. something so i guess you real about everything that is on screen because the camp that they're in was it was built specifically for the movie and it was like acres but they only shot in certain sections of it but so like you're when they're walking around there's this real thing in the background that the camera isn't capturing but it's like reflected in like the performances and the faces of all the actors in it i don't know it was it has a a very strange quality to it and it's also strange because of just how many british people are in it but we got takeshi katano you have uh tom conti um, and, of course, David Bowie. And it, it just has a, a, a very different take on you know, prisoner of war movies because it's a love story. And I, I think it's, it, it, it doesn't get enough credit from the queer community because like, it, its central narrative is about you know, Sakamoto himself playing like the commandant of the camp, getting strangely fascinated with a, you know, a South African prisoner. You know like he he gets he's basically falling in love with him and this prisoner you know knows it too but it's like not something that's explicitly stated it's just how they are behaving towards each other and how they're like talking around it cuz like a, the beginning of the movie you know opens with this confrontation between the prisoners and the guards because it's been discovered that one of the prisoners has been like been you know been raped by a guard for like over the course of weeks and then you see the culture clash. Like, how do the, like the, the, the Japanese are macho, and they look at these you know, fey little British officers and they're like, oh yeah, you guys are obviously gay. This is so fucked up. And then they ritualistically, ritual, ritualistically make the uh, fronting guard commit seppuku, of course. You know, mm-hmm. but, but then that's what's hanging over the head of this commandant. He can't express who he is, authentically. He can't you know, pursue this side of himself because it be, it would mean his death. And you know he loves David Bowie's character so much, but he can't do anything to stop you know his fate from coming to him either. And uh, I don't know, it has some you know, pretty you know interesting commentary on you know war and like and what happens when it's over, like like what is moral, like is anybody moral in a conflict, victor or you know the defeated? And it it was a really beautiful, beautiful movie, really haunting. Mm. And I had never heard of it before I heard that Ryuichi Sakamoto had passed away. So I'm grateful that I got to watch it. It's on the Criterion, you know, you know, streaming, you know, you know, app, and uh, worth seeing.
0: Yeah, I have to, I have to uh, check this out. I honestly, I think I had heard of this movie, but I, I didn't re- know really anything about it. It kind of strikes me as um, like a mix between Bridge Over the River Kwai and, um, uh, oh gosh, why am I blanking on the name? The movie about the uh, Japanese soldier that uh oh. that i watched last year oh uh, um, on- onada onada yeah it's kind of a mix between those two things that's what it looks like to me anyways but.
1: yeah no, like the scenes between tom conti and takeshi Kitano are oh, they're great mm-hmm. it's great acting you know even if it's a british man speaking not his native tongue it's like it still works you know like it's a it's a fascinating fascinating movie and i'm glad i got to watch it mm-hmm. on hulu you checked out something called The Good Mothers. What can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, this one, uh, interesting. This just kind of came out of the blue for me. Um, this is an Italian uh, language drama that I think Hulu just kind of picked up Picked up the rights for. Um, it premiered last year on, on Italian TV. And this is very similar to, I talked about last year, um, A Chiara or A Chiara. Um, very similar vibe. Um, that movie is about a, a girl, a girl, teenage girl, who's deciding whether or not she's going to participate in her family's mob dealings, in the Italian mob. Um, this one is more so... Uh, this actually reminds me a lot of, like, The Wire. Like, if, if you were to tell me that the Italians decided to remake The Wire and that this was the first season of their version of The Wire, that's kind of what... It that's what it reminds me of because you're following right both the police and the criminals. You're getting you're getting both sides of the this sort of um, situation here and how what this is. This is based on a true story, and it's about this prosecutor that decided in order to catch this uh, mob family in Italy. They're they're called the Drangyata mm-hmm. the Drangyata family and um in order to catch them she exploited this sort of weakness that she perceived in their organization where the women are basically married off into these families at 17 or 18 years old, and they're expected. It's very, very nuclear family, very, very typical gender roles. The women just stay home. They cook, they clean, they take care of the children. They, they're never allowed to go out. The men are out out philandering and doing drugs and having, you know, extramarital affairs. And so she exploited this weakness where she she turned all of these mob wives against their husbands and made them into informants and then like sprung the trap on them. And wow. It's, it's it's fucking insane. Yeah, it's like it's like one of those things that's like way too it's almost like too unbelievable for real life, but but it actually happened. And so that's kind of what the story is here is this this prosecutor sort of trying to turn these women against their husbands and some of them go for it. Some of them don't. And it's very tense because you don't know if the, the the women who don't go for it, if they're going to, you know, uh, spill the beans to their husbands and essentially all these women would probably be dead if they were to. And wow. So it's,
1: it's kind of like women talking in a way too. yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very similar. Yep. And so, um, it's a very, yeah, a very tense show, really, really well plotted. And, um, it's only six episodes. It's, it's sort of British in that way where it's not very many episodes, but it kind of does what it needs to. And, um, yeah, really, really enjoyed this. I think it's, it's really going under the radar. I'm not, I'm not seeing anybody talking about this at all. And, um, it's very much worth your time.
1: I'm going to have to check that out. I tried watching it yesterday. And then November woke up from her nap. So Peppa Pig had to go on the TV. <laughs> yeah. um, what I did get to watch myself is the latest in the paranoid action TV stylings of our boy Kiefer Sutherland. In a rather serviceable, a little Robert Ludlam-esque thriller. You know, it. it it's... You know, like if you've you know, read any of his books or seen the Born Identity movies, at least the first one, you get the formula because you have a guy who's a specialist. There's all kinds of crazy things happening. An innocent bystander, usually a female, gets roped into like traveling with him because she starts out as a hostage and then becomes a love interest. It's that kind of thing. But this is about a guy who works for corporations to social engineer results. So... In the op- like in the opening se- sequence they are trying to trick a wall street guy into selling his positions on something so they construct a fake news broadcast you know announcing like issues with the company in question so that he'll just hop on the phone and be like sell it sell it now even though everything's fine and then the big question swirling around for like regulators is okay why the hell did this dude just sell off all of his positions for no good fucking reason when this broadcast he said he saw it never occurred you know and the answer is Mm. well kiefer sutherland and his people did it they're kind of like the characters in the show uh what's it called it's it's like it's just like like oh i love it when a heist comes together what is that fucking show called it's it's on cbs i can't remember it it's it's got that guy from ordinary people are you talking about A team? Not the A team. No. Okay. This is a recent series and I'm blanking on the the fucking okay. name of it, but it's it's like it seems you think you're in a procedural. You you meet all the team, you meet all these wise crack-in people who all have a specific job to do. You see them do their job and then you and then all of a sudden they're all just like blown up and this like benign thing that this that they were doing to try and contrive a situation and behavior out of people blows up on them cuz Keith R. Sutherland is accused of killing this person when he hasn't done it. And so now he's on the run and the his friend who hired him for the gig just for like no reason gets like an email from someone who tells him to do something. So he goes out onto the balcony of his high rise and you know jumps off of it and kills himself. And so it's this mystery why the fuck is like you know, all this happening? Who's trying to set him up for murder? and then Charles Dance shows up as his dad who faked his death in the 70s and the plot becomes incomprehensible because <laughs> then it introduces, you know, things in later episodes that made me go, "Wait a minute, if Keith Sutherland's character knew X, Y, and Z, why the fuck was he behaving like A?" Cuz mm. you, know, you know like like who is he trying to fool here? Like and why and, and and B? Why did his friend kill himself when he seemingly was in on this long-term plan just like Kiefer Sutherland was? So I'm ripping my hair out and I don't finish this show, but my parents mm. would probably turn it on and have it on before they you know, pass out. And that's what this show is good for. <laughs> it's like, if you liked 24, which I did, that was like my favorite thing to do in the heyday mm. of mailed discs was, Oh, do we got another four hours worth of 24? Fuck yeah. I'm here for it. But yeah, th- this show left me whelmed, even though it did all of the things that, you know, used to be pretty reliably entertaining.
0: Does um The, the thing that kind of struck me about this show as I, you know, watched the the preview and as I've watched the clips that you have now is does Kiefer Sutherland seem too old for this show? Like, yes. does he seem like this? Yeah, because <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of, or maybe not a lot, but there's at least some moments of action in this show. And he just he's I don't know. He, isn't Kiefer Sutherland like pushing like. 65 ish yeah, yeah. around there I think
1: it, yeah it, it's it is almost as bad as you know sliced alone in Tulsa king cuz like there's a yeah. <laughs> there's a scene where like a young dude in his 20s with like a skateboard is trying to like steal something from him and they get in this like knockout drag out fight involving a skateboard in the streets of New York City and somehow Keith Sutherland wins and I was just like no way no way that the, that he that kid would be like gasping for air and Sutherland would be the one with like a second win to like run away with the item that they were looking for it just it you know beggared belief you know as it, as it went along and yeah, this would have been a better show in the hands of somebody younger or even mm-hmm. like, like they, they could have found like this could have been a, an awesome girl boss show, too. But for some reason they went with, you know, or boy Sutherland because he's recognizably, you know, associated with this kind of thing. But I think this yeah. might be the last hurrah for that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up on the watch list is something that I couldn't make it through one episode of because financial insecurity does not make me have a good time and seeing people make awful decisions with their money just makes me anxious so i didn't make it through the first episode as soon as the bitcoin loss porn started <laughs> happening i was like nope but is this show worth plowing through because this is an a special
0: yes yeah, this is... Um, I, I wasn't really sure what to make of the show. I'd heard it's sort of logline before, you know, in the in the weeks leading up to its release as, like, two people get into, like, a road raid incident. Like, that's, that's, like, the byline for the show. And um, I kind of knew I was on the show's wavelength when the title for the first episode comes up, and it's the Werner Herzog quote uh the birds don't sing they screech in pain and so i was like okay okay show sure. i'm i'm with you and so yeah i mean what the very first like 15 minutes of the first episode of the show are the the sort of premise road raiding incident like it's an extended like knockdown drag out like completely insane uh incident and then the two people sort of go their separate ways but they sort of find as they go through daily life that they can't get like the other person like out of the back of their mind like it's like infesting them and so they have to they find out who each other are and they start sort of making each other's lives a living hell and this this show sort of starts as a comedy but if that's if that's what you want or if that's what you came to this for yeah don't keep watching because it's like a slow descent into like madness and like existential crisis and um it's it gets you know more not not even dramatic but it just gets more like sad as it goes on for these people and um, and
1: that's the thing like like the opening of the the pilot was like it was awesome but like as it went along and you just saw all the the self-destruction that was looming it made me very sad (laughs)
0: yeah yeah it's sort of and it's kind of hard to describe the feeling of this show um i guess it it reminds me a bit of ingrid goes west and maybe a bit of um especially in like the latter half it reminds me of the the show devs but if you were to remove all the sci-fi elements like that's kind of just the feeling the show has um but yeah i really enjoyed this i think it's so well written like i'm it's funny and it's like darkly funny but it doesn't the thing i like about it is that the 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 humor comes from a well-written script it's not just like cringe humor which is a lot of what humor is nowadays you know like putting people in like weird situations and then you know oh somebody said something awkward or somebody, somebody did something awkward you know it's actual humor that comes from the the quality of the writing and um yeah it's um, I, I want to give a shout out to the the showrunner. His name is Lee Sin Jin. He's a Korean, and he's worked a lot on "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." Oh. Um, and he also did um, what else did he do? He did some episodes of um, that Tuca and Birdie, that animated show. Oh, and weird, yeah. He's he he comes from an interesting background. He does he's he's from a very comedic background, but this is his first sort of serious thing and he's killing the interview he, yeah yeah he is this is this is some quality stuff and um I I want to send people to a interview that he gave with variety this week it's over at on variety's website and he talked about this show and sort of how his thoughts about it and he was raised in the Korean, uh, Christian church, and so was Stephen Yun, and so that there that's involved in this show a lot. The the Korean Christian church and Stephen Yun and, and him bonded over their sort of not their love, but their sort of mutual growing up um, around the music of Chris Tomlin, the Christian artist, Chris Tomlin. That's and very so, funny. <laughs> yeah he, he he talked about he talks about that and. He also talks about, he, he's actually the guy who's writing the Thunderbolts movie for Marvel. So he talks about kind of how he got that gig. And then the most interesting thing, and the reason why you, you should go watch or read this interview with him, is he um, talks about the, the, how the two leads of his show are Asian, um, in Ali Wong and Steven Yeun. But he doesn't necessarily think, think that's what makes them interesting, And he he kind of talks about how he thinks that that's sort of used as a crutch nowadays a lot where, you know, people's identity is kind of like um, used as a crutch to say like, well, you know, these people are Asian and that's what makes them interesting. And his sort of he sort of rails against that and says, no. My characters just happen to be Asian. What makes them interesting is all this other stuff in their life. And he sort of rails against that notion. And I find it, it's a very, very interesting read. So I, I want to send people over there to read that interview and then, yeah, and then go watch this because I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I was definitely on the show's wavelength.
1: That, I, I'm really reassured that, you know, that was the, the perspective that he would have because when I was watching it, that's not what I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about their race. Or anything. Yeah. It was like like w- what are their struggles? Like like the, the, everything that these people were experiencing the imposter syndrome, the trying to you know break through you know social barriers you know you know not because of you know who you are but how much money you have or like what you can do for other people, you know the you're know, just trying to make a buck, trying to make up for letting your family down. Like the, mm-hmm. there's some there's just universal human things you know, themes permeating this, and yeah, if you're only looking. At the surface of it, you're missing out on what's truly, you know, wondrous about it. And I'm saying this as someone who maybe didn't, you know, finish the fir- the whole thing of the first episode. <laughs> but I've seen enough of this to know that I want to finish it. I just couldn't handle it. because <laughs> yeah, it, it, it gets so intense.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something where you know you watch one or two episodes and take a break. And luckily, the episodes are only about 30 minutes. They sort of top out at like 35 minutes, so. Um, yeah, but yeah, really good. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I do want to shout out the films or not, not the film, the show's supporting cast. Um, uh, we've got, uh, Maria Bello shows up yes. as Ali Wong's sort of, um, completely like inept, like head in the clouds boss who, who just like is rich beyond belief like she gives me lucille bluth vibes from rest of development oh yeah um, the whole mushroom feast in the the first episode yeah (laughs) and so she shows up and then also um um oh god what's his name uh justin min the guy who played yang and after yang he plays the the pastor of the the korean christian church in this and he's he's good and then i think even um uh Andrew Santino shows up in the back half of the show too. And so he's the, the show's got a pretty good supporting cast and the dude who plays
1: his cousin. Uh, is it like, is it Stephen Ch- Not Stephen Choi. Is it like David? I think he yeah, yeah. David Choi. David yeah, Choi. Like that. That's what it is. Yeah. I, I just know him from vice and like, you know, like you, know, Joe Rogan appearances. So it was funny mm-hmm. to see him show up basically yeah. playing himself. <laughs> I'm gonna to have to give this a revisit because it it just yeah. it's a, it seems like powerful stuff. Because I got a new phone, I was you know given a basically a free Apple TV Plus subscription, and well, part of that you know is that I get to see you know this Tetris movie, which you know, identity you when know, we were talking about that in regard to beef Asian identity in particular, I'm just gonna get the elephant in the room out of the way. The man who Um, Taron Egerton is playing in this movie is very very definitely part Filipino you can tell Mm. he does not look Welsh even one little bit (laughs) and so like you have to you have to understand this is a Marv production Taron Egerton is a Marv boy and he's a name and this is on Apple TV and for some reason they were comfortable with this character not being portrayed by someone who's you know, actual identity aligned with the identity of the person. That's because this is a fucking movie and everything in it is heightened and probably not accurate to truth. But mm-hmm. when you get to, as far as, you know, that is concerned, is it an entertaining fucking movie? Yes, it fucking is. It's, it's not pretentious mm-hmm. enough to think that it's the social network, even though it's getting compared to that. Like half of this movie will just have random pixelated you know, things show up when people hop in cars. They'll they'll get like digitized and drive around. the The end of the movie is like an, a literal, you know, like video game level, where like they're driving to the airport, being pursued by KGB agents. It, it gets really out there, but at the same time, it's really it's a it's a crazy story. It covers and the, and the true story you know it is in here. The Robert Maxwell, the the guy who showed you know uh, epstein himself how to do the blackmail game if you, you believe in that tinfoil he used to own the mirror newspaper he also had a company mm-hmm. called mirror soft and they were the part of the problem as far as who had the rights to tetris globally and like that whole rat's nest is fascinating because it's like yeah everyone's just transacting and thinking that they're they are getting a license to you know do business with something and the soviets have no fucking clue what's going on they don't know how much money is being left on the table. And it's not until, you know, the Taryn Edgerson's character, you know, gets involved and shows up and realizes the problem that exists that like any action really happens, but this is a busy fucking movie. The first mm. like 20 minutes, it feels like two whole acts of a movie happened. because there's just so much jet setting and like meetings and like it, it advances really, really quickly. And then, after it has advanced and you get to like level two of the story, it really fucking takes off and gets more centered and grounded. And it's, it's fun and it's fun seeing video game history, you know, done like this. I, I enjoyed this. Okay. Can you not swing that around November?
0: Oh my God. So let me, let me ask you this. I remember when, when a Tetris movie was announced. Yeah that everybody was like, Oh, a Tetris movie. How do you make a Tetris movie? Like, that's like one of those things. Like, how do you make a, you know, like a monopoly movie or a Candyland movie. And so the, the whole Tetris aspect of this is yeah. just kind of the jumping off point. Precisely, right? Like yeah. this movie isn't actually about Tetris.
1: No, it's, it's about the, the, the Soviet computer scientist who, you know, moonlighted by making games, who mm. made his rudimentary version of it. and, like, as with all good killer applications, just like with Doom with you know for Windows 95, Microsoft needed to create software to remove Doom from their computers because people weren't working. The Soviets had the same problem with Tetris. And that is the story. It's like, yeah, like, who created it? Like, you know, and then how was the bureaucracy involved? And then who are all the business people around the world who started trying to get their claws on it? And then the struggle over who would actually get to do it and what's nice is that there's clear villains. The KGB and Robert Maxwell are definitely the bad guys. And mm-hmm. the good guys are Nintendo and this scrappy little developer who realized that he had that that this Russian guy had found gold. But that's what's, what's kind of neat about it is that in reality, the the guy who created Tetris and the and, and entire nitrogen's character, they eventually got to own Tetris. You know, it eventually became theirs. It stopped being something that was owned by the Soviet government, stopped being owned by, you know, these institutions within that country. And it fell, it got It got a capitalist happy ending. And it even kind of frames it in a way where it's like, yeah, because Tetris came out of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union collapsed. Like that was the the thing that really pushed it over <laughs> the edge was them letting capitalism in through this video game. So like, it covers a lot of ground and it gets really, you know, but it's, it's a, it gets kind of fun and like in the action sequences, you know, are kind of exciting and it, it, yeah, it, it, it should not work like you know, on paper when you, when you first hear the pitch, like who wants to hear this story? The real story is this crazy, but I'm sure there wasn't like a mad chase to the airport. Like where the the Nintendo, you know, it, you know, suits are like you know, shakily smoking cigarettes because they think they're going to get murdered in Russia. <laughs> but it, it's a it was a really cool movie and a lot better than okay. it probably had any you know right to be. Awesome. That's the watch list. Time to move on to the main event, and I'll let you take it away, Matt. We have Don Siegel's The Shootist.
0: Yeah, I kind of want to start by taking you back um, the years nineteen seventy six john wayne is a fading star and westerns were also on their way out the door Um, john wayne had a cancer removed from his lung in 1964 and now that cancer was back and working its way through his spine his intestines and his stomach Um, there's kind of conflicting information out there about whether or not wayne actually knew these specifics while he was working on the Shootist, but at the very least he sort of knew that the end was getting near. And The Shootist, to me, it works best when it's watched as a requiem for Wayne's life and his career. It's it's a sparsely plotted film with a sort of classic appearance that could be mistaken for datedness. Uh, The script isn't really gonna win any awards. And one could almost interpret this as a step backwards for Siegel if they wanted after the subversive and fresh, dirty Harry. But the thing that keeps The Shootist in the front of my mind, even now, three days after watching it, is the surprising amount of introspection and character depth on John Wayne's behalf. Um, He's a man who otherwise is used to punching and shooting his way out of situations, the sort of noble brute. And to be able to make a narrative film about the exact circumstances that you find yourself in in real life, it's kind of a rare thing. And it's even rarer to be able to reflect on your own death in such a public and forever recorded way. And um, of course, you know, we know the end of the story. Wayne would make one final public appearance at the 1979 Oscars, and then two months later, he would die. And to me, The Shootist will sort of always now be his swan song. And it's it's really a movie where you have to take the sort of Real life circumstances into account, and it really sort of makes everything that's happening on the screen pop. And that's kind of where I'll I'll start with it. But yeah, Chuck, what did you think of the Shootist?
1: Yeah, elegiac doesn't you know quite do it justice in terms of describing you know the you know like what that that what permeates the air of this movie. Everyone who is in this movie was basically handpicked by Wayne himself. You know, like he he was like I liked Lauren Bacall. I want to work with Lauren Bacall. Oh, Jimmy Stewart, get Jimmy in here. You know, like it, it. He even his horse was his you know favorite horse, Dollar. You know from his career that he like basically forced to be in the script. Like the, he was very careful about how he wanted this film to you know, present him. Like, he didn't want to shoot anyone in the back, which is you know, something that was removed from the movie. And you you definitely you know get the sense yeah that this guy knew something was you know that the end was nigh he, he had one lung when he was making this movie yeah you know which is you know why he just looks always so tired and haggard the virility had been sucked out of him but he could still you know dead eye just nail someone from his horse with a derringer if he had to you know like as you know, like as an actor and as the character in this but the scene with Jimmy Stewart where he is told he has cancer was used in a American Cancer Society PSA that, like, Wayne was in, which was, like, one of the last things he he did in addition to the Oscars. And, yeah, like, when you get, you know, boil it all down, it, it does kind of seem quaint, especially in the era with all the other, you know, company of other films that came out in 76. Like, you know, titles like, what was it, like, you know, Taxi Driver and... You know everything in between like network and here you network. have a you have a movie that looks like it was shot in the 50s but it, I don't know there, there is some creeping you know the bits of that you know like you have seagull's edge you know creatively but when you got uh, its whole at its heart though this is more of a John Wayne movie than it is a seagull movie or or should we give Siegel more credit?
0: You know, I think you're right on that fact. Um, I think a lot of the stuff going on under the surface, I think, is probably Seagull. um, Because I'm sure that Wayne was probably very, very into his character. And I think a lot of the, you know, extra stuff, the extraneous stuff around the edges of the movie are probably more Seagull as far as like, this is a movie about endings and new beginnings, because you have sort of the end of a man's life. You have the turn... The It's set during the turn of the century. The end of the Wild West. You know, cars are becoming a thing. Yeah. There's, there's... there's You see, like, really old cars in this movie. There's a Coca-Cola um, sign. You know, like... Yeah.
1: Modernity is starting to show up.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's... um The end of Queen Victoria's reign, too. That's also in there. And so... But then you also have sort of the new beginnings. They talk about um one of the themes that they hit on in the movie is this idea of false spring and the movie is set sort of in this period of time where it's still winter but the snow is melting and the sort of grass is peeking up through the ground and um it's sort of yeah it's winter for books john wayne's character but it's spring for the younger generations and that's sort of where ron howard's character comes in and um, yeah. I, I don't know. What did you think of, what did you make of Ron Howard's character? It, it's interesting. Cause yeah, he's, he's kind of like, uh,
1: he reminds me of, uh, uh, Casey Affleck's, you know, you know, you know, coward Robert Ford, you know, to, mm. to, to an extent, just in terms of, you know, how he, he knows all the stories he's heard of all the, all the kills that this guy has had. He's a legend. And now he gets to like, learn from the legend or at least you like see the the legend for you know all of his you know, like faults and your know, foibles and like you know does he live up to it? you know does can he gain anything from it and i found that you know he the part where he comes home drunk after hanging out with scatman crothers like yeah. you know, i i thought like it was like that kind of like you know caught the vibe and then by the end i guess we can be, we'll, we'll get to that i guess eventually but i i was actually kind of surprised by how much i enjoyed ron howard's like little performance because he is just a little supporting part but it's the the heart of the movie more so than the relationship with lauren bacall's you know you know bond character the mother mm-hmm. I, I found the more important was where, where where did where were things going to go with with uh, gillam and books like the, that was what i was more interested in over whether or not this spinster was going to like make this guy fall in love or something, even though that's not really what the movie did anyway, which is yeah. to its credit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how, yeah, she's sort of positioned as um, the woman who's sort of doesn't like him at first and then sort of warms up to him. And, um, and we do get a, a point in the movie where, you know, one of his love interests from the past shows up, but then we find out that she's essentially just trying to exploit him. And, and, and sort of take advantage of his life story on behalf of that reporter that he got rid of earlier in the movie. And so, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. I mean, again, that's, I I think that's probably Siegel is doing all that stuff. You know, that's probably all his work, including all the stuff like that. Um, and like, and the pillow thing too, (laughs) like that, that's totally, that that's probably him. Um, but yeah it's like i said earlier though i mean it's not it's a pretty like sparse movie i mean there's there isn't like a ton going on on the surface of this film and you have to look deeper to see kind of what um you know some of those themes and um yeah i i want to know kind of what your thoughts are on what what, what is um, books ultimately sort of like searching for? Because well, there's numerous scenes in the film where people like offer him a helping hand or sort of try and empathize with him. And he, he, a lot of times he just like shrugs them off or there's a scene where Bond, you know, tries to convince him to go to church with her. And he states that he doesn't need repentance or solace so i don't know what is he sort of looking for in your opinion in these last days of his life
1: that's hard to say like because yeah like i guess he just he just wants to be comfortable i guess and he'd you'll rather be like left alone and like and, and to not have ceremony and to, yeah not to be exploited the concern like with the uh yeah because like the the undertaker played by john Carradine, who's like hey i'll, I'll let you have it for free yeah, just so you can sell tickets, you know. Like I've seen how it's done, you know. Like this is like like he has seen every like Wild Bill Hickok and everybody else who came before him, and you know, like, who have died before him. Rather, he has seen what happens to other shootists, mm-hmm. and, and, and in some respects, he is the last of the shootists in the the universe of this move of the movie. And he knows the ends that all the others have come to. So, but like it seems funny that yeah, like, all he could have just lie in bed you know, and die comfortably. But instead, he loads six six rounds into his pistols because his gut tells him to, and he puts himself in a position where he knows that he'll die on his shield or get carried out on his shield, as it were. And mm-hmm. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's too simplistic of a read, but when the when the opportunity comes to, you know, go out guns blazing, he, he chooses that direction. It's not forced upon.
0: Yeah, he's it's interesting, yeah, because he starts off the movie sort of thinking that he's going to just die in that room at at Bond's house and just sort of die comfortably, you know, drinking laudanum and and just, you know, passing away very, very comfortably and slowly. But um, it's yeah, it's interesting that he chooses to kind of go out guns blazing because um, it's almost as if, you know, to kind of get into the ending here a bit. It, there is a moment at the very end where ron howard's character picks up the guns to to shoot the barkeep and then uh uh books looks at him and with his sort of his dying breath he gives him sort of like a a, pr- a nod of approval when ron howard throws the guns away so I I'm I'm still kind of trying to parse that out yeah. because it's almost in direct opposition to what he was doing with his sort of final hours of his life. And so what what do you make of that? There's a line when he is showing Gillum how
1: to shoot where he you know like basically says it's like 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 how like how do you like like how have you lived so long or like something like that like like how have you survived so many gunfights? And he makes the comment that, well, a man's got a look in his eye when he's gonna pull the trigger, and you can tell when someone is gonna pull the trigger, and like when they like when they mean to, or like when they have the conviction to take another person's life. It's in their face, it's in their eyes, and in that moment, Gillum had that conviction, but he lost it as soon as he did it, and he threw the gun away. And maybe like, I kind of took it as a yeah, like at a boy kid, like you you had the, you had the you had it in you to do it but you have mm-hmm. it in you to never do it again. Basically. I uh, like that's, okay, yeah. that, that was my read.
0: Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. That's that totally makes sense. Yeah. Cause it's, it's sort of a very interesting, um, you know, thing for him to do in, in his sort of last moments alive, but uh, yeah. What did you make of that whole, that whole scene with um, the whole sort of ending scene? I mean, it's the big like shootout at the end of the movie. And you know, as far as like the action, as far as the action goes in this movie, it's pretty rudimentary. I mean, there's there's a part where John Wayne literally like jumps over the bar, and you can totally tell that it's like a stunt man <laughs> actually doing it. But but, but the, uh... it
1: has some like very like it was very simple though. That's what I loved about it because yeah, it's just three people with revolvers, you mm. know, slowly like trying to like you know like you know creep out like you you compare it to like how like specialists with you know, you know gun specialists today. like how operators would handle a sequence like a situation like that and and, but this is the wild west it's like and you just see this guy like like duck walking below the bar so he doesn't get seen but then books looks up and sees his reflection in the glass so he knows exactly what's coming so he can Mm -hmm. dead eye him between the eyes when he peeks around the corner like an idiot so in, in a way it's like yeah he survived because not, like everybody else with a gun had no fucking clue how to you know, not get shot by one back then I don't yeah. so I don't know the 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 most efficient tactics available hadn't been you know codified in terms of mm-hmm. like a saloon shootout
0: yeah the and yeah to speak on that a little bit more the other thing that I think is probably totally part of Siegel's input is the blood of the movie because yeah. you're not going to, I was shocking to find. Yeah. You're not going to find out John Wayne Western, you know, from the fifties that has people like getting shot and then like profusely bleeding, you know, bright red yeah. stage blood. And, uh, so that's totally probably Siegel's move, but, um, cause it made, to... it made that ending like feel like more impactful. Cause yeah. Oh it was yeah. Like, for it was sure. like,
1: holy shit. Like this is probably the first time John Wayne has ever bled in a movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's I mean, he was notorious against, you know, the sort of increasing uh, amount of violence in movies in the 70s. He's, he spoke on that so many times in interviews where he thought, you know, that the violence in movies was getting out of hand. And he preferred like the tasteful violence of the, his early Westerns where, you know, people get shot and they grab their stomach and then they turn around. So you don't see anything and they just die on the ground. That's and you funny. never actually see it.
1: Yeah, because he wanted to be in Dirty Harry. He loved that script when it was getting shopped around.
0: Really? Okay. And, and that's yeah. why he
1: handpicked Siegel for this, because he admired all of his career leading up to that point. And he was actually a little disappointed with Siegel because he wasn't making a John Ford Western. Hmm.
0: I, mean, I, I I would guess then... I mean, he's probably, when he you know rails against that type of violence, he's probably... More so speaking to a very particular type of violence, like um, I'm sure that John Wayne probably wasn't a fan of like The Exorcist, for instance. Like, yeah, okay. you know, like I, it's probably that type of stuff would be my guess. You know, he like yeah, The Exorcist. Maybe I don't know if he had any complaints about like The Godfather. He was probably probably pretty pretty shocked by that. I would imagine the but, graphic sags
1: um, and and whatnot.
0: Yeah, but um. Yeah, I mean, as far as what about like as far as behind the camera for this film, anything that stood out to you as far as, you know, the look of the film, maybe the the score, um, anything like that, because I the one thing I did want to call out was there is some points in this movie where the camera is doing like some absolutely like bonkers yeah. stuff where i'm where i'm like how did why did why is this even in the movie like where the the one thing that i called out in our in our google doc was uh at the end when ron howard is like staggering out of the saloon the camera like when he walks past the camera the camera like flips like it does a complete like like 180 like o- yeah, over it was and a then,
1: steven Soderbergh style you know handheld yeah. camera shot
0: yeah it totally was and it's it's so weird and it's like and then it cuts too you can see there's a very very obvious cut during that part and there's a couple moments like that in the movie where it's just doing some really wild stuff and i don't know was there anything like that that stood out to you in the movie as far as like the look or anything that's the thing like so much of the, the
1: the the shot selection choices the editing choices are so like restrained and like tied down you know, that. Yeah, like a lot like the stuff that like doesn't fit that paradigm. It, it, it almost didn't even stick out for me until you pointed that shot to me. It had it mm-hmm. didn't like register as something wildly different. But now, like, I almost feel like I want to watch this again so I could like you know like, better answer this question, because so much of this just seemed so basic. You know, mm-hmm. I guess like in that shootout, there, there were some like weird You know choices you know that were made as well but otherwise yeah it's a lot of static camera work you know like except you know for you know some like transition stuff like when he's riding into town but otherwise not a lot of motion
0: yeah definitely and that
1: score is so sad and melancholy (laughs) (laughs) oh it's just yeah you, you don't yeah you don't you don't walk away from this feeling too happy and that ending is just so abrupt too because like it it just the camera just pulls out and then suddenly the credits are rolling and Mm -hmm. his body's just covered with a coat in a saloon and that's the end of john books
0: yeah yeah well i guess you know this sort of the lingering like specter over this movie and sort of the final question i guess i'll sort of propose as we sort of near the end of this is I want to know like, what do you actually think was going through John Wayne's mind while he was making this movie? You know, what, what is his intent with this character? What is his, what's the message he's trying to send? Um, you know, what's cause I mean, Oh God, it just every, the the thing that I think about with this movie is just like the, it's so existential. It's such a basic movie, on the surface but the stuff surrounding this movie is so existential and like like he he definitely knew that something was wrong and that his days were numbered and it's like just being able to reflect on that in such a way that you're able to go through the process of making a whole movie about the idea that you're about to die it's just it's insane and so i don't know what do you think was sort of in his mind
1: because that's the thing it's not only in his mind but in Siegel's mind too because this is not just a swan song for for uh you know for wayne it's a swan song for the western genre as it was because like for how many like decades of cinema were westerns essential and as uh, something that always got made the superhero movies of their time yeah. and they were already like out of you know vogue they already you know weren't connecting with the zeitgeist the way it was so here was one last chance to you know not like not only sh- like show the, the the end of West the, the Western genre's greatest star but in a you know a like it's a I guess it's an elegy it's an elegy for the genre at the same mm-hmm. time it doesn't you know give you the sweeping John Ford stuff because this is the end. And I think Siegel you know, was doing that with the movie he made. It was you know simple instead of sweeping, and you know it honed in on that existential dread that was definitely within Wayne because it was within anybody whose bread and butter was making Western films.
0: And, yeah, I, I, well, I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this movie is worth watching just for like the historical. I mean, the movie itself is decent enough. I think. I mean, it's it's not the most exciting thing in the world. It's yeah. not the you know, you're you're not gonna like. It's not gonna change your life, you know, by itself. But this movie is a historical artifact, and that's why I think it's worth watching. Yeah,
1: like it's it's a time capsule. But it's like it's mm-hmm. it's a time capsule from the end of the world. You know, if that makes any sense. Because yeah, the, yeah the, there was a sure. new spring for Hollywood. They moved beyond this genre. They moved beyond people like Wayne, and that son even sent for for Eastwood two eventually Mm -hmm. and as far as the yeah the the lineage is concerned you like this is where the postmodernism firmly took over you know the not only you know you know westerns but of you know hollywood in general and the next year star wars came out and i think that says everything that needs to be said yeah for sure but if you're you're a western fan your collection not complete without this in there because you need that bookend you need that demarcation point from where it, you know, it stopped being what it was and, you know, had to become something else and evolve in other ways.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: time for the mentionables. We got a, a new comic coming out from our boy, Greg Rutka, and a, a massive creative team. What can you tell us about this?
0: Yeah. So I, I picked this one up last week. Um, this is from Greg Rutka and Eric Troutman and with art by Mike Henderson uh this is called forged and uh greg rucka big fan of him he uh people would would know him probably i mean these days probably mostly from he was the guy who wrote the old guard um that the netflix movie was based on uh but he also had a stint on batman and he also has a very celebrated run on wonder woman yeah and, and this this is his new this is a magazine sized uh like extra length first issue so it's i think it was like 64 pages so it's like double the length of a normal comic and this i yeah i really like this This is a very pulpy very violent um sort of sexy sci-fi adventure there's there's a lot of like sex in this out of nowhere and um it's like you squash together uh heavy metal and warhammer is kind of how i would describe it And that's kind of why that's kind of why I'm mentioning it, because I know that you're a big Warhammer fan, but it's um, it's very dense. And um, the the, sort of the log line of it, the premise is um, the ship is traveling through hyperspace with a, a group of super soldiers who are on their way to their next routine mission. And along the way, they sort of figure out that something's afoot on their way to this planet. And that's kind of where the first issue ends when they finally get to the planet. But yeah, this is, it's so dense and I'm grateful that by the end of the first issue, I actually knew sort of what was going on because when you open this thing up, I just want to read like what the, the first page, when you first open it up, this is what it says. It says, 22nd day of nine month reign of the eternal empress year 13,817 the imperial calendar 17 days out of re- resupply depot rampart 91 vanta losiris 4 en route to the operational theater 51 d11 hinter systems so it's just like yeah it's I, all this like I s- I need sci-fi this. nonsense <laughs> I, I, I need this
1: this is you're, you're so right about this being in my wheelhouse because Believe it or not, Matt, I am still actively working on Rooster. So, like, this is. Oh yeah. yeah. So this is.
0: I need to. I need to check this thing out. Oh my god it's incredibly, incredibly dense and it's, it's really, you know, building out a, a cool world, I think. And, you know, luckily, as I said, by the end of the first issue, you're, you're hooked. And, and that's kind of the appeal of Greg Rutka comics. Um, and so, yeah, very, very, very highly recommended. I think the first issue comes out, or the second issue comes out next week. So.
1: Were you with us at, at San Diego comic-con when we, we went to it was before the Warren Ellis documentary panel. There was like a crime comics panel. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I was there. I was there for that. And then I I think I left once the Warren Ellis stuff started. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But Greg Rucker was in that panel. That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I don't, I didn't even remember that. Yeah.
1: Along with Mark Wade and a a lot of other guys, but that that was a neat thing that we'd like was right after the, the root beer mind erasers took hold. My mentionable, uh, you know, it's an extension of you know, my my Steam Deck purchase, but I have been emulating like no other just because I, I wanted to see what the appeal was. And now I have no room to install my Steam library because I have every Nintendo 64 game, every single Super Nintendo game and a half a dozen GameCube games. But I have been playing more so out of all of that because I can't just play, you know, like you know, Sarge's Green Army Men on the Nintendo 64 all the time. But I have been getting into a game I've been meaning to play for years, Shadow of the Colossus, and mm. I've I haven't beaten it, but I'm you know, I've gotten through like the first four of the Colossi if the, my game saved correctly because that's no, for some reason really hard to get right in the emulation setting, you know, in this particular game because I don't think there's actually like a, a direct save feature. You have to find like a shrine within the world and pray in front of it, and that's what saves your game. I don't know, but an incredible, incredible experience. I can't believe it you know I had to wait twenty years to finally do it. But that's the the beautiful thing that the the Steam Deck has you made possible for me. Have you ever played that, or like even like the 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 remake that they did recently? Was is that the preferred method? Get the HD remake.
0: You know, actually, I've I've only played the original, and I played that. I actually played. I didn't have a PS2 when I was a kid. I, I was more of a Nintendo household, and I actually played through Shadow of the Colossus at um, our uh, mutual uh, friend Steve Sanford's house, and um, played through that entire game over at his house because he was he was the one who had the PS2. And so, yeah. um, yes, I, I, I played through that. And uh, yeah, great game. I, I'll just I'll echo everything you said, and you know whether you played on an emulator or otherwise amazing game
1: yeah probably do it play it legally that's what i'll say you know to cover my ass a little bit what was (laughs) your pick of the week
0: yeah you know um i'm gonna do i probably would do beef but i think beef has enough uh good good press out there it seems to be popular and so i'll instead say the good mothers uh because again it's it's going criminally under the radar um over at hulu And they're not doing much to promote it but this yeah great great series great crime show amazing true story um and yeah just uh, i was so surprised i mean just it took me this was this was like a blind watch for me i sort of read the plot synopsis and just checked it out and yeah that would be my pick of the week i would say tetris because
1: it also is an incredibly wonderfully entertaining true story but I feel like more people need to watch Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, if mm-hmm. only because it is the best acting that David Bowie ever did and like really showed what he could do. You know, like it's it's kind of criminal that the man didn't act more because he is a you know, like a, a force of nature in this movie when he doesn't really do much. It's like it's very hard to describe the, the qualities that he has going on. But I recommend that one wholeheartedly. Stick, stick around for the soundtrack, too. It's, it's very memorable. But this was Theater and Stream. Thank you for you know, joining us. And we will be back um, next week to review uh, Escape from Alcatraz, to put a pin on our Don Siegel retrospective before we return to our regularly scheduled programming in theaters that actually have something worth seeing in them, That's not a slight against the super mario brothers movie but i think that's clearly made for the kids and we will defer that to all of the poor parents who will be forced to watch it you know over and over and over again in the future so thank you matt thank you everybody for watching and have a week yep see ya